0: Do take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. If the Christian faith has nothing to say about death, then it has nothing to say. When we're young, we don't think or talk very much about death, unless that is it should intrude into our life. And even when we're older, very often it's relegated to the back of our consciousness. I remember a man in his 80s admitted to me that on the death of his wife that he had never seriously thought about death and its consequences. In death, we lose. We lose a parent, a child, a friend, a spouse, our own lives. However much we try to disguise it, to keep it away, to confine it within the clean clinical walls of the hospice, or the hospital, the fact remains that it is an ugly unwelcome intruder into our world. It can fill us with fear. Shakespeare calls it that unknown born from which no traveler returns. Bertrand Russell, the atheist wrote, there is darkness without and when I die there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere only triviality for a moment and then nothing and for those who can't deal with the issue of death there's only joking about it as Woody Allen summed it up I'm not it's not that I'm afraid of death it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens but did you know that death is an even more acute problem For the Christian believer. It it raises questions that the believer finds it hard to answer. Is God good? Why has God allowed death? Can God not do something about it? If he can, why does he not stop it? And in many ways, these questions are the the subplot in the story of Jesus and Lazarus that we find in John chapter 11 it's one of the most significant chapters in the book of John and uh, John and John has put this story in the other writers have left it out but John puts it in here because he sees its significance actually in the life of Jesus but also for us Bethany where Lazarus lived where his sisters also lived It was only a very few miles from Jerusalem, from the capital city. It was in Jerusalem that Jesus is going to end his life, actually within a week or so of this momentous event. And it was here in Bethany that we will see the climax of those signs which John has talked to us about in this gospel. This is the final sign That Jesus will perform, at least in John's selection of the miracles that Jesus performs. All of these signs, in all of them, from the very first where he turns the water into wine, he has revealed God's glory. And here we have that final revelation at his hands. And this final revelation teaches us this that in the hands of Jesus, death itself will die. In the hands of Jesus, death itself will die. This is where the story of John chapter 11 is going. This is where the story of every believer listening to me is going to end death itself will die at the hands of him who holds the keys of death and Hades. And for everyone else, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, and that will spell a second, more final, more horrifying, more eternal death. But this day is not that day. And our problem is, and it's the issue being addressed in this chapter, is that the day of resurrection hasn't come yet. Today we still suffer separation and loss. Today's death still intrudes into our world. And what makes it even worse is that in this chapter, The reality of death and illness and dying is tied very closely to the love of Jesus. Actually, when you read this section that we read earlier, uh, you'll notice that there is a whole lot of loving going on. It's almost the line for a song. There's a whole lot of loving going on. Well, there is. Sorry for those of you who don't, uh, you're not into the classics. Uh, There's... There's the love of Mary in verse 2. The one who we're told would anoint the Lord Jesus, uh, the story of which is told in chapter 12. She was obviously well known for that event. She is not the Mary, another Mary with very different circumstances who anoints Jesus on another occasion. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. Uh, There is the obvious love of the sisters for their brother as they come to Jesus and they make application to him, verse 3, for his help. Lazarus, by the way, their brother, was very likely an older brother and in that culture was most probably married. Very seldom would you find an unmarried older man. He was most likely married. He had probably his own home and family. And that explains, I think, why in chapter 12, uh, Lazarus is listed among the guests at a special meal at his sister's house. If it was his own house, he wouldn't be listed with the guests, obviously. But theirs was a very close family relationship, and the girls adored their older brother. And then there's the love of Jesus. For the whole family, in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved each one of them, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And the sisters recognized this when they sent to the master. Do you see what they say to him? They sent to the master and they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And I think there's a whole lot of loving going on among the disciples. They love Jesus as they try to dissuade him from returning to Judea because, verse 8, they're afraid. In fact, they're sure that if he goes back there, he'll be killed. Lastly, I think there's a the love of Thomas in verse 16, who, in resignation to their fate, chooses to go along with Jesus, even if that means, in Thomas's own words, that they will die with him. And so last words, they will die with him, which offers you a little bit of a clue about what's going on in this first part and throughout this whole chapter. Because the shadow of the cross is cast all over the events of this chapter. Because it is the need of his friends that brings Jesus back from Judea, back to the Jerusalem area where he will in one final act the action in this chapter later on provoke the authorities to breaking point they will not be able to endure this any longer and it will be this event his action on their behalf that will put him into harm's way and that will end up with him crucified dead and buried. So we come to the story then. And as we look at these opening verses of the chapter, which in many ways are just kind of getting ready for the main act, which is the resurrection of Lazarus. We find a number of things that give us pause for thought. For example, consider for a moment the ways of Jesus in this story. The ways of Jesus in this story. It is the story, of course, of the premature death of a well-loved brother and friend. But Jesus very quickly takes the spotlight. And the issue in the beginning is about Jesus' response to a very personal tragedy. The experience of these girls is one of anguish. It's very natural anguish. The anguish of those who see someone they love terminally ill. But their language is compounded by their relationship to Jesus. We we know from the gospel record that there is a very close personal friendship between Jesus and Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Especially between Jesus and Martha and Mary. He very often spent time in their company. He spent time had meals in their home and so on and there was a very close bond you can see that because they sent for him and in fact you you can see that these are believers these women are believers they believe in Jesus they have a great trust in him therefore it was very natural for them to send for him not for one minute did they think that he wouldn't come to them they knew him too well he knew them too well they knew how much, how fond of them he was. And if you look at verse 21, and again in verse 32, you can see what Martha's comment in verse 21, echoed by Mary's comment in verse 32. They say to him, when they do see him, Lord, if you, if you had been here, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. They were believers, you see, and there's no indication that they thought that Jesus' friends should be exempt from sickness. Rather, they knew that Jesus could do something about sickness. They knew that. They also knew where to find him. The authorities couldn't find him. They knew where to send for him. And when they send for him, they appeal to his love for them. And they appeal to their relationship with him. And they apply to him for help. The one that you love is ill. They think that's all they have to say to get a response, a reaction. Now, I wonder if you can identify for a moment. Let's pause there just for a moment. Can you identify with the relationship between these people and the Lord Jesus? Can you? I know you don't know Jesus in the flesh. You don't know him as they knew him in the flesh. But in many ways, you know him as well as they do, if you're a believer, Jesus actually later on will spell out the blessing and he says, you know, it's a blessed thing to know me according to the flesh. But it's an even greater blessing for those who will have never known me but will come to know me by faith. Let me ask you this. This is your birthright as a believer. Your birthright is, as a believer is this, that you know that you have access to Jesus that the world doesn't have. You have instant access to Jesus. You don't have to send someone many miles to find Him somewhere and ask Him to come. You have instant access to Jesus. Right where you are sitting at this moment, in your mind, you can call on Him. You can appeal to Him. You can call on His name. He is accessible to you wherever you are, whoever you are, At whatever time and in whatever circumstances you find yourself to be. Not only do you have access to Him, but He has taught you that you have a claim to Him. You have a claim to His attention. He has promised that He will hear you. He has promised that instantly He will hear you. And that instantly He will take what you have to bring to Him and take it seriously. You have a right, a claim to His time, His attention... And his power because once we've been redeemed by Jesus we belong to him we belong to him he is his I am his and he is mine there's the reality of our experience I read of an old man who was once asked what he did when he was in trouble and he said I say to the Lord Lord your property is in danger You belong to him. What a wonderful realization to have. Not only did he make me, but he bought me, and he owns me, not in the sense of possesses, but in the sense that he acknowledges that he is mine, and I am his. And so they rightly acted on the relationship they had with him, and in on their knowledge of his heart of love for them, They were within their their rights as his friends to apply to him for help. And so are you. So are you. And you can imagine, therefore, their added distress when Jesus apparently does not act. See, they knew that he had, on occasion, healed people from a distance. I think the messenger probably got to Jesus in the nick of time at the point at which the messenger comes to Jesus Lazarus is probably still alive so they got there in the nick of time all Jesus has to say is go back and tell them you'll be all right." and his messenger would go back and by the time he arrived back there would be Lazarus sitting drinking his chateauneuf de pape and enjoying the company of the food food that, that his sisters would be preparing for him, pizza and Whatever, and he'd be enjoying their company and all would be well. It'd be a very happy time. We know Jesus could do that. We know that because we've read the story. They knew that because they were there and saw him do it. Again and again and again. So you understand their concern here. They also knew that perhaps if he left immediately, he could be back in time to save his friend's life. Instead, put yourself in their shoes. Their brother worsens. There's no sign of Jesus. Lazarus dies. For four days, he's dead. No sign of Jesus. Can you imagine how that exacerbates the sense of anguish that they're feeling at the loss of their brother? After four days, by the way, Uh, The kind of popular superstition was that the soul of the deceased hung around for three days and then got out of of there. So just to put everybody's mind at rest, to, to overcome any of the superstitions that were around, for four days Lazarus was dead. And for the sisters back in Bethany, the delay, the lack of healing would lead to a growing dismay as their brother's condition deteriorated and then died now to make it worse for us reading the story is this fact that Jesus obviously chose not to do anything and he chose not to return to heal either from a distance or back to be with them Look at verse 5 and 6. We'll look at this again in a moment, but just look at it to, to set that up for us. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John reminds us of that. And here's what he puts in the context of that loving relationship. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And that seems to contradict the love of Jesus for these people. Do you notice that? You see, it isn't just, this is a point. It isn't just that Jesus loves the world generally. And it isn't just that Jesus loves his own people, which he does especially. But that he loves them as individuals And knows them by name. That's why John puts that in there. So that we know that Jesus, who loves his people, loves them by name as individuals. They're on his heart. They're on his mind. And I think John puts that in there. So that you know that untimely deaths, periods of prolonged suffering... Circumstances that seem to contradict the assurance of God's love are not in themselves tests of the quality or reality of the love of God for his people, for you. The thing that strikes us is the thought that Jesus may be completely informed about your troubles and yet act as if He were indifferent to them. We learn that prayer for the sick, which is encouraged in the Bible, may not be answered, apparently. We learn that what happens may appear to contradict the clear words of Jesus. And how would they interpret those words in verse 4? This illness does not lead to death. Death. It is for the glory of God. How are we to understand the ways of Jesus with us and with others? Isn't it true that we often pray about things and seemingly get no answer or no for an answer? Don't his methods at times seem counterproductive? Isn't there often an apparent contradiction between the assurances of his love on the one hand and the circumstances he permits or ordains on the other? We know what it is to be let down by friends, but it seems a million times worse to be let down by Jesus. John has no doubt a theological purpose here. Because this one, Lazarus, the one whom Jesus loves, is being held up as a representative of all those who love the Lord Jesus and whom Jesus loves. And it strikes us that even those whom Jesus loves especially, if we can even say that, those whom Jesus loves get sick and eventually die. He loves you. You will get sick and you will die. And you may be struggling this evening with the question, does he really love me? And I think one of the lessons here is that your circumstances are not the measure of Jesus' love for you. The crosses we'll see that. Go back to verse 5 again. I want you to notice in verse 5 that there is a direct link drawn between his love, and his mysterious ways with us. Did you see that? I want you to look at this word that unlocks the powerful impact of this sentence. That word translated, soul, or it could be translated, therefore. It's there in the original, so it's not just been added by the translator. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, Therefore, because he loved them, because he loved them, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus knew what this would mean, this delay. It would mean the certainty of Lazarus' death. And we know that he knew that because in verse 14, he tells the disciples, He told them plainly, Lazarus has died. What kind of love is this that does not jump every time we call? What kind of love is this that does not indulge us, that does not jump when we cry to him? We find the mysterious ways of Jesus difficult. When we find his ways difficult, we need to listen more closely to his word. Look at verse 4. He shared the news, you see. Heard the news about Lazarus being ill. He says, For it is to the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. Or verse 15. For your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. And in verse 42 on account of the people standing round, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is saying by his word that there is an intention behind his delays. You see, the first thing Jesus does when he hears the news of Lazarus' illness is put it down in relation to the glory of God and his own glory. This illness he says, is about the glory of God ultimately. This illness will not reach its climax in death. This illness, being permitted, being allowed, happening to this man, has a point, but the point is not his death. That's what Jesus is saying. The point is not his death. It is the glory of God. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, what do we mean by that? In the context of John's Gospel, you go back to John chapter 1, where we're first introduced to that glory. As John writes there, you remember the Word who was always with God face to face, the Word who is God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you go back forward to chapter 17, you find Him talking again about the glory He had with the Father before the world was. The pre-existent glory of God. In other words, Jesus, in his pre-existent reality as the second person of the Trinity, shared everything there is about God. He shares the glory of God, which means he has all that God has, because God does not share his glory with anybody else. And if Jesus shared the glory of God, it means that Jesus is God. John has said that right up front in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And in his public ministry, that pre-existent glory, the glory of his pre-existent life, shoots through his humanity, and we see it manifest it when he turns the water into wine, when he heals a man, when he heals another woman somewhere else, and when here he comes and raises the dead, there is a power that is not natural to human beings. It's a display of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, of course, the glory of God will be revealed when Jesus is crucified dead and buried and then raised from the dead and then exalted to the Father's right hand. There will be the final display of his glory during his earthly career. The glory of God is something of that eternal splendor of Jesus happening in the world of created things, doing something in the world of created things, manifesting something of the splendor of God. Jesus says, this man's sickness is going to result in an outshining, a manifestation of the glory of God. As the power of God raises this man from the dead. That's where it's going. That's where the story is headed. So when we wonder at Jesus' ways, we must listen to Jesus' word. And we must learn from Jesus' wisdom. It's good to remember that our Lord's purpose for us while we're here on planet earth is not primarily to make us happy or healthy, but to make us holy. There's something shocking in the words of verse 14. Lazarus has died And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Excuse me, Lord, would you like to rephrase that? Glad? You're glad? Glad that you weren't there? That doesn't sound right. This if the Lord is saying to these men, children, don't you realize that I know the end from the beginning? Don't you understand that I'm not taken by surprise? Don't you, don't you think for one minute that I don't know exactly what's going on in this circumstance? I knew he was ill. I know he's dead now. Do you think for one nanosecond that, that my wisdom doesn't comprehend all that there is to know? Things don't just come up with me. Maybe we need to take those word, words to heart. But in his wisdom, he knows about those bills you're struggling to pay, that prognosis that you've just received, your fears, your doubts, that bad relationship you're struggling with It. He knows. Do you think there's anything that is outside of the scope of his wisdom? Do you think that for one moment? You see, he's doing something far greater in us. Do you notice that? He he, he wants his disciples to believe. To believe in him. Believing, you see. You don't believe when you see it. You believe before you see it. He wants them to believe before anything happens. That's what he wants of us. That's what it is to be a Christian. To walk by faith, not by sight. What is the problem in some kind of uh, movements that are about in Christianity today in, in, in some quarters is that they want to have it all now. They want to see it. They won't believe until they see something supernatural happening. They don't want to believe. Jesus says to them, I want you to believe in me. Somebody has written this. I want to read it to you. He loves us too much to leave us part saved, part remade, part sanctified. He wills our holiness, and since suffering produces holiness, we may expect him and his love to allow things in our lives which in our self-centered pursuit of happiness, we ourselves would exclude. Yet even in the shadow of his love, there's always mercy. Our sorrows are shared by him. He comes to us in our pain. The end of it all is not only his glory, which needs no further justifying, but also our good. Jesus' ways are shaped by his wisdom. In verse 4, we hear him say, this illness does not lead to... To death, as unlikely as it appeared to the disciples and the sisters and the crowd, death would not write the last chapter of this story. And already in verse 11, Jesus is redefining death for the believer. He redefines death. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Did you notice that? In verse 11, but I am going to go and awaken him. That's what Jesus has come to do. Sleep is something you wake up from. He is teaching us what death means for the believer. The body falls asleep while the spirit is released immediately into the presence of the Lord. Without, any, without a nanosecond of separation from him. And on the day of resurrection, the body that fell asleep is re, is reconstructed, transformed, and awakened and rejoined to our spirit until we are one whole person again on the day of resurrection. Death is not the end the message is that in his wisdom, he knows that. And he knows what he's about. He knows what he's doing. He knows where we're going. And the best is yet to be. So when you wonder at his ways, when he does seem to delay in answering our prayers for healing or for the meeting of a need or the deliverance from a habit or a destructive relationship, Or for the salvation of a loved one. I don't know why he delays. I don't know why it is in your case or mine that these things happen. I can't give a definitive answer. But I can tell you this, delays are inevitable. We are finite. We cannot see the big picture. Our best desires and prayers are shot through with selfishness and sin But I can assure you of this, God's delays are not final. This story is in the Bible to teach us that. We may bury our dead, as Martha and Mary did, but that is not the end of the story. And what he wants is, by holding back for a time, us to learn to trust him, to rest on him, to lean our weight upon Him. And to see the moments and days of our lives are not merely at the, are not at the mercy of chance, but in, are in the hands of this loving, wise Savior who knows when and how to act. That's the purpose of that little par- mini parable in the middle there. That there is a moment that God knows and that Jesus knows. You see, he doesn't go back when he gets the message. But later he's the one who initiates it and says in verse 7 to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. He could have said it earlier. But it wasn't his time earlier. Any more than it was the right time when his mother came and said to him, They're running out of wine. Nod, nod, hint, hint, wink, wink. You know, could you do something about this, son? And he says to her, no, it's not my time. And she goes off feeling rather crushed perhaps. So her son has said no to her. then a little while later, it is his time. And he changes the water into, Jesus waits his father's timing. All the time. And in the timing of the father, there is a moment that moment is coming that moment is coming when all our dead will live when all our tears will be wiped away when all our suffering will cease when all our struggling with sin will come to an end when we will be better than we ever were Creatures of such splendor. And for eternity, 10 billion years from now, somewhere in this massive universe that God has made for his people to enjoy, we'll bump into one another and we'll remind ourselves that we learned from John 11 of that moment that will have burned itself into our everlasting memory when the shackles and pains of this earth were finally cast off, Jesus returned, and we were given bodies like his glorious body. Death itself will die at the hands of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you for your grace that has given us these reassurances of our final resurrection, but also given us reassurances for today. Today, when we've applied to Jesus for help, perhaps, and not consciously heard anything back from him, not seen anything that indicates an answer, And our prayers go up moment by moment, day by day, sometimes with great pain, anguish, crying, tears. The reassurance is that you do hear. But you know what we don't know. And your purposes are always for our good. And all will end in our glorious resurrection with you. Help us to live in the meantime, trusting, walking by faith. Strengthen our faith tonight, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.